Hello there, we're running into a new episode of the Culloden Home Bible Study Podcast. It is study number six on the School of Christ, the Upper Room Discourse of the Lord, John 13 to 17. And this study I've entitled The Prayer, A Lesson on Divine Fellowship. I'm Andrew here and um, we trust that you'll be blessed as you listen in to this podcast. The Bible study happened last evening and um, it was a lovely time. There was just a few of us there. Um, with the way things were in other people's lives, but it is such a blessed chapter. Um, there is no chapter really in the Bible quite like uh, John 17. It is a unique chapter in so many different ways. We have the Son of God speaking to his Father, and we are, as it were, allowed to listen into the very words of, of deity as Son speaks to Father. Um, of course, we've been looking at the school of Christ as a picture of the Lord being the teacher. And clearly he was. He says, you call me teacher and Lord um, in chapter 13. <clears throat> but it is interesting that we've been thinking of um, how he has talked to the disciples about the Father. That's the first um, chapters from 13 to 16. Now we are looking at how he speaks to the Father about the disciples. There's more to it than that, but that's just a nice wee way in which to think of this this chapter. He turns his attention to heaven and he looks into heaven as we'll think in a minute. So it's good to just kind of reflect on teaching if you're in whatever level you teach, where you teach your children, um, perhaps you teach in a Sunday school, a Bible class, and whatever sphere that maybe you have a responsibility to teach in, it's good to remember to come back to God and report on that teaching. Um, I take that to heart for myself. It's easy to teach and then just think, well, that's my responsibility done. But the Lord Jesus, he comes into God's presence and he speaks to the Father about what he has taught his pupils, what he has taught his disciples. So John chapter 17 uh, verse 1 to 26, um, <clears throat> there's one or two wee themes that we, we will see are rather obvious as we go down the verses. Uh, a lot of similar themes that we've had in John's Gospel to this point, the father-son relationship uh, within the Godhead. That's really emphasized at the start. Glory, the whole thought of glory and to be glorified and so on. They, these are concepts that John develops and we were thinking about them last night. He has, in this chapter, hatred and love, the world, truth, um, all these kinds of concepts that are very important to John um, and very deep in John. Uh, people have called this the high priestly prayer of the Lord. The Lord is leaving earth. In fact, at one point, he says he's already left the world and he's going to the Father. Um, and we see the picture of, of the high priest going into the presence of God for his people. You'll remember um, in the Aaronic priesthood, which is this is pictured on, um, you had upon the breast of the high priest the breastplate, and it lay over his heart, and it had 12 individual precious stones, and each stone represented one of the sons of Israel. And the picture being, of course, that we are on the heart of our high priest. He's our great high priest. Um, we are individually on his heart, uh, but of course, on the shoulders, um, the place of not only of affection, the heart, place of strength, the shoulders, you had uh, six of the names of the sons of Israel on one shoulder and six on the other shoulder of the high 
priest and, and that's only a little bit of you know, what we can think of when we think of the one who goes into God's presence to represent us in the presence of God. He came out from God's presence to show us the Father. He's going back into God's presence as our representatives, as our high priest. Um, the, there are a lot of passages that really emphasize this. Um, he intercedes for us, Romans chapter 8 and 34. It tells us um, that he is... Uh, Christ is not only risen, but he's in the presence of God and he's interceding on our behalf. Uh, we can think about that uh, a little bit more detail. He is obviously the one who is able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God by him, seeing ever liveth to make intercession for them. Again, he's the high priest and he intercedes. He is also the advocate. You remember that word comforter has been used in earlier chapters. He is spoken about the fact that the Holy Spirit is another comforter, another helper, a helper who's one who's called alongside, one who's come into his life, into the life of God's people. Uh, now, because he is risen uh, from the dead and exalted on high, and he has sent him and the Father has sent him and so on. But remember that it says another comforter, another helper, another advocate, to use the Greek term, another paraclete, another one called alongside. So in other words, that means that there are two paracletes. There is the one in heaven, the Lord Jesus, and he is called out in 1 John chapter 2. He is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, our paraclete. He's the one who is our, our helper in that sense in God's presence. And yet in another sense, uh, we have a helper indwelling us, a fortifying us, a comforter. You, you'll notice comforting, we think of it in a kind of putting a blanket round. Whereas in the New Testament, or even in um, the, the King James Version, it uses uh, comfort. There's a more bracing thought in it, um, an encouraging thought, a drawing alongside, putting your arm around it, rather than just giving a soft comfort blanket to. So there's this thought of, of helping and assisting um, and the Holy Spirit is with us and indwelling us now to comfort. But in this context, uh, we have one who is our advocate, the one who goes into the presence of God for us. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And so that's kind of in the background of this passage, the idea of him going into God's presence as our advocate. And going into God's presence as our high priest and intercessor, the one who intercedes for us, who prays, as it were, we might say, for us. Of course, someone has said that if we could hear the Lord praying for us in the next room, it would make us as bold as lions. And that's very true, I think. Um, yet he does pray for us. He does intercede for us. Do you remember that passage in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 22 and verse number uh, thirty? Uh, one I think it is Luke 22 and 31 I'll just turn to it in, in my Bible here um, and it says um, and the Lord said Simon, Simon indeed Simon uh, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat this is in light of Peter's betrayal, the Lord says, Peter, or Simon, Satan is really trying to get a hold of you. He wants to sift you, put you through the sieve. 
But I have prayed for you, the Lord says, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And of course, the next verse, Lord, I'm ready. I, I, can, I can face it all. But he didn't realize his need of one to intercede for him. Now, the Lord's present work, we're going to see he separates himself to his present work in order that he might intercede for his people. And the reason we have the preservation that we have today is not only because we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, but because God's Son is at God's right hand and he is interceding for us. He is our high priest and he is also our advocate when we sin, when we fall. So it's important we understand not only the past work of the Lord Jesus, but his present work. His past work is essential to everything. The foundation of all that we have is the death and resurrection of Christ. But his present work keeps us safe during the journey home. And his future work, which we'll be involved in as well, when he will bring to consummation all the purposes of God and he will, and he will uh, reign uh, from the river to the ends of the earth. All that's wonderful. There's truth in that uh, work. That is for us as well. So he has a past work, a present work, and a future work. Now we're going to get to the passage that we're uh, looking at today. Let's read the passage together. I've divided this passage into its obvious three sections. Verse 1 to 5, the Son prays for his and the Father's glory. That's all about the Father-Son relationship. It's about the glory of God. You'll notice verse number 1, it says... Um, the glorify your son verse number five oh father glorify me and so we'll read that passage in a second then the second section verse 6 to 19 the son intercedes for the apostles now remember this is primarily for the apostles by extension we can take the truth of it to ourselves but primarily it's about the apostles this is clear um from what he says in verse 6 from what he says about the son of perdition later on and for what he says in verse 20, when he moves into the next session, he says, I don't pray for these alone. In other words, he's been praying specifically for the apostles. But now he's going to widen his prayer uh, also to those who believe in me through their word. In other words, the rest of the church. So you'll see the development of thought. The Father's glory, a personal prayer in relation to his and the Father's glory, verse 1 to 3. The Son then intercedes for the apostles, verse 6 to 19, and then he intercedes for all future believers. So let's read this passage, keeping that in mind. Verse 1 to 5, the Son prays for uh, his and the Father's glory. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Then the Son intercedes for the apostles. I have manifest your name to the men which whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. 
and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours and all mine is yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. In the last section, the Son intercedes for all future believers. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who, you, who will believe in me through their words. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them. And I in them. That's from the New King James Version of uh, the Scriptures. Amen. Let's just pray. Father, help us as we look into your Holy Word that we might be blessed. That each of these sections might mean something to us that perhaps it didn't mean before. Most of all, that the Lord might have his place with us each as thy people. In the Lord's name we ask it. Amen. The Lord begins this prayer by lifting up his eyes to heaven. It is, as it were, that he looks into heaven. You'll remember in chapter 11 he lifted up his eyes as well. And instead of that posture of complete surrender that we see in other aspects of the Lord's ministry when he prostrates himself in Gethsemane in a few hours time in less than a few hours perhaps a few minutes time 
In this prayer, he raises his eyes to heaven. He's speaking as the son to the father, not so much in that sense. Of course, he is truly man and verily God in one person. So not so much the emphasis lying with his humanity at this point, but with his deity, although they're inextricably linked and cannot be divided. He said, Father, the hour has come. You'll, of course, be able to trace that through uh, the whole of John's Gospel, this idea of the hour, and eventually he'll say when they come, this is your hour in the power of darkness. Again and again he said, my hour is not yet come, but now, Father, the hour has come. He is departing, he tells in chapters 13, um, his hour has come to depart out of the world unto the Father. And this is the way he's going. He's going out via the cross. Perhaps they have reached the Garden of Gethsemane now. And the Lord says, Father, the hour has come. Then he says, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. We thought a lot about this, this idea of glory. What does it mean, really? And we came to the idea that it's the outshining of the character and excellence of the individual, of the, in this case, the son. And what the son is asking is that the Lord Jesus' excellence might shine out, as it were. Glorify your son. How did that happen? Well, did it happen in his death? Do we have the excellence of the Lord Jesus shining out in his death? Well, of course we do. In fact, it's spoken of a chapter or two earlier as the glory of the Son of Man. He was the one who would be obedient unto death. He would obey at a tree and in a garden. You remember the first man he disobeyed at a tree and in a garden in foreign extra circumstances. But the, the second man, the Lord out of heaven, he is going to obey. Is that glorifying to the Son? Of course it is. It's particularly the Son of Man that's in question there. What about in resurrection glorifying to the Son? Of course, chapter um, 11, again, um, chapter 11 really emphasizes the fact that the glory of the Son of God is seen in resurrection. And so there's a sense in which what he is asking is as he goes through death and resurrection towards glory in that sense of being glorified and and seen and exhibited in heaven for what he is, glorified in himself and straightway glorified, he says in chapter 13. In light of that, The whole pathway is going to be a pathway where he is glorified. And so the glorification, in a sense, it starts via and through the cross and resurrection and exaltation into heaven itself. He's received up in glory. And he says, glorify your son. But you'll see that this is not what we might term a selfish thing. It is a reciprocal glory. This is something we see comes up again and again. The Father does things for the Son. The Son does things for the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And and so there's this reciprocal glory. He says, listen, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. The purpose behind it, it was a relational purpose. He is wanting the glory of the Father. Isn't this wonderful? It's one of the beauties of the Trinity. That we can have this reciprocation in the Godhead. Some people say, well, God asking for glory of, him, of himself, is that not some, somehow wrong? Of course, it 
there's several problems with that question because some people aren't understanding that God is deserving of all the glory in the universe because he is God and there is none else and, and glory belongs to him. And so to give him glory is just to give him what is his due. So at one level, that's a, a silly question. At another level, however, we've got to understand that when God is seeking for glory, the Father is seeking for glory for the Son. The Son is seeking for glory for the Father. And we've got to brought together beautifully, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. It will be through my glorification that the Father is glorified, the Son is seen. But you say more. He says, as you have given, or since you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. You say, what's this got to do with what he's saying? He's saying, listen, the pathway to glory for me is the pathway of blessing to mankind. It's not only the pathway of blessing to mankind, it's the pathway of God's purpose because God had given him authority over all flesh. I take it that means in him coming in in incarnation initially, he took to himself humanity and therefore he stands as a especially in resurrection, as the head of a new order of manhood. He is the one who, who is, has authority, not over some flesh, over all flesh. The, the job of mankind has been handed into the hand of the Son. And why is it? So that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And that's a broader thought than just the apostles I take it here. This is the... The believers being the love gift of the Father to the Son. But of course we're going to see in the next section that, that believers not only belong to the Son but to the Father also. Uh, they're in the Father and Son's hand to, to lift something from John chapter 10. But what he's saying in verse number 3 is let he digs down into this idea of eternal life. That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's a sense in which what he's saying is this. The knowledge of God is eternal life in this sense. A deepening and deepening understanding, a journey into the understanding and knowledge of God is what eternal life really is. It's what it's about. It's not about just a, a, a life that, live, that exists forever. People will exist forever. Everyone will exist forever. Those who reject Christ will exist forever under God's judgment. So it's not eternal existence that is being spoken of. It is eternal life and life necessitates. Um, it's necessitated. Brought to pass, as it were, by the, the Son who has authority over all flesh. And this is the way you see this, the Father, one of the ways in which the Father will be glorified. Because to know God and to appreciate God for what he is brings glory to God. Now for us, if someone knows us, gets to know us better, it actually might bring shame upon us. You know, if Lindsay finds out something about me she didn't know before, it, there's no telling whether that would be a good thing or a bad thing. She might find out that I'm not as good at something as she thought I was. Or, or she might find out that, that I just somehow have clay feet in some area. Um, I might f be marked by failure, even sin in some area of my life. And, and for her to know me better would just bring shame, not glory to me. But that's never the case for God. To know him is to glorify him, is to appreciate his glory. So to come back to the first 
verse, glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. How? Well, that can be brought through by the purpose that you have given him. The father glorifies the son. The son glorifies the father by giving eternal life to those um, who respond to the gospel. And that brings glory to the father. So it's all about glory. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. So he's saying, I have finished what is done to be done on the earth. I have glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work you, which you have given me to do. So there's a sense in which he is speaking as a divine son. He is speaking as though it's already accomplished everything to do with being on earth. Even the cross. It's seen as a done deal. And so he's speaking as God. Because of course that's what God can do. He can call things before they really are. He can, um, he can speak of things. Like in Psalm number uh, 2. When the father says... Um, God says, I have set my son upon my holy hill of Zion. Well, that hasn't happened yet, but it has in God's purpose. And so there's a sense in which I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O oh Father, in contrast to the idea of being glor glorifying you on earth, now, O oh Father, glorify me. And the authorised version here, I think, misses a trick. It's brought out in this version. Glorify me together with yourself or alongside yourself with, with the glory which I had alongside you before the world was. This is um, not him glorifying the Father on earth, but now being glorified in the presence of the Father. And so this is what the Son prays for. He's praying through Calvary, through resurrection, through ascension, to God's right hand, to a display of being glorified in the Father, and of course that will eternally extend out into the future. So the Son prays for his Father, his glory and his glory. Secondly, the Son intercedes for the apostles. Now, we see the Lord's mission accomplished really brought out here, and, and you'll remember that um, this is, the, the son speaking to the father and he is, as it were, the teacher showing his teaching. Has he communicated effectively and efficiently? Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Verse number 8. For I have given them the words which you have given me. So, so there's this thought behind it, and there's more that could be said on that, but there's that thought in which I have communicated, I have done my role as a teacher, communicating the name of the Father to these men. You come to the end of the chapter, I have declared them your declared to them your name. So really essentially the work of, of the Son of God to the firstly to the eleven apostles. And by extension to us, is to declare the Father's name, to unfold, unpack for us, to interpret the Father for us. This is John 1 and 18. Again, you look at that verse in your own time. So he says next, um, it's, it's this idea of manifesting name. That, that's a thought of manifesting the character of the Father, the nature of the Father to people that, we use the idea of name for reputation. You know, someone has a good name at something. Well, that, I think, 
I'm right in saying, was the Greek way of thinking of name. The, the Hebrew way of thinking of name was a wee bit deeper than that, perhaps, of not just reputation, but revealed character. And, and so here we have it. I have manifested your character, your, your nature to the people that you've given me, to the men that you've given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. In other words, the, the apostles were already belonging to God. Now, now, some will enter into the realm of God's sovereign program here. And perhaps that's in the background a little bit. It certainly seems to be earlier on. But I, I think that if we just stick to the context here, they were already belonging to God. They were disciples of John the Baptist before the circumstances changed where they came to know that God had sent his son and that the Lamb of God was pointed out to them by John the Baptist and they followed him. They were God's originally and they were given to the Lord Jesus to care for them, to keep them, to shepherd them, to teach them. I have given them the words you have given me. They have received them and have known for surely that you came forth, that I came forth from you. They have believed that you sent me. Isn't it interesting? The other side of the, the teacher-pupil relationship is not just that the, the teacher has to communicate the truth, and that was perfectly done by the son, but that truth has to be received, that, that teaching has to be received. He has told us in chapter 16, I think it's in verse 12, that, that there are limitations upon any teacher, even the son of God. He says, there's things I can't teach you now. This is actually an interesting theme through scripture. I can't teach you this now. You'll remember Paul said to the Corinthians, I can't teach you this now. The, the um, writer of the Hebrews said, I can't teach you certain things now. You, you're not at the stage to understand certain things. And the Lord, well, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit wasn't within them as yet, he is not going to teach them certain things. now. So that's no reflection on the teacher. That's just the limitation of the pupil, as it were. But what, the, what we have of these disciples are some really positive things, say. He says, they have received them, the words that you've uh, given to me. Verse number eight. They have believed that you sent me. I am glorified in them. And so he says, I'm not going to pray for the world at this point. I'm praying for those that you've given me, for they are yours and all mine is yours. In other words, now there's a sense in which, because in the oneness of the Trinity, uh, all that the Father has is the Son, all that the Son has is the Father. We have this beautiful we have the love gift, yes, but we also have the thought of reciprocation again. And this is a beautiful theme. I, I really ask you to go away and dwell on the reciprocal relationship, the relationship between father and son as developed in John's gospel. It will do your heart good and it will deepen your understanding of the Trinity. Now I'm no longer in the world, he says. So the, the Lord is speaking at maybe anticipatively and in another sense it's actually happening it's happening as we speak i'm no longer in the world he is seeing himself begun the journey back to god outside the world's sphere and in that sense we see in this a picture of his present work where he is set apart for his people in god's presence these are in the these are in the world i come to you 
Verse number 11. Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And so now he's going to call upon the, the Father to, to make there be a unity and a oneness between them. A deeper than surface unity. It doesn't mean you lose your personality. The Father, Son and Holy Spirit are distinct persons in the Godhead. But they are one in a, in a profound way. A way far beyond our understanding. And he says, just as we are, he would like this to be replicated. And of course that will be true in Christ, in the Father, in God. To use First Thessalonians chapter 1, speak in God, the Father and of course, Romans chapter 8, in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't have time to develop those, but that's worth just saying now. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. None of them is lost except the son of the perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So, the Lord has kept them, kept this little band together, looked after them, nurtured them, shepherded them, held them together, taught them, Show to them the Father. This was no mean task without the indwelling Spirit of God. This is a tremendous task. And the only one that's lost is the one whose heart was wrong anyway. Uh, the son of perdition. The son, um, the one who had the character of the enemy uh, already in his heart. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, I come to you. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves I've given them your word not just your words but your word the whole revealing not just of, of the particular words that you wanted me to speak to them but the whole character of yourself and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world notice this relationship between the disciples and the world is emphasised they are in the world, they're left in the world but they're not of the world. Not of the world, verse 14. Just as I'm not of the world. In other words, there's a heavenly, a distinct character that now marks these, these disciples, and by extension, we'll see us. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. In other words, I'm not praying now for them to be removed from the world at this point. That'll come in a future time. But just now that you should keep them from the evil one. I do not pray. Uh, uh, they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. And then he says set them apart. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In other words let your word change the mold. And set them apart in reality in their lives. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As I, as you sent me into the world, now you're being sent in a mission into the world. I also have sent them into the world, verse 18. And for their sakes, the Lord then says, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. What's meant by that expression, for their sakes, I sanctify myself? Well, the Lord is set apart. The idea behind sanctification is, is not so much the thought um, while it might have a moral dimension to it, it's not only a moral thing. So it's not just that, well, for us it's very moral. So for the disciples to be set apart from an immoral world around, an evil world around, they needed to be dwelling on the truth of God. That's how you practically become more like Christ. You 
delve into the word. You allow, you allow the word to change your heart, life. You're from the inside out. That's the way it works. That's Romans 12. You know, you're be not conformed to this word, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How's that come about? It comes out about by being uh, renewed um, through the word of God. However, in this case, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart. Now, the Lord's not saying that there was any unholiness in him. Of course, that's impossible. Uh, in him is no sin, uh, John will say in First John. What he is saying is that the Lord has been set apart for a particular purpose in this present age. This is tremendous. Now, this is something to grasp hold of. The Son has gone back to the Father. He has set himself apart. In a sense, we could say he has set himself apart to go to Calvary. That's a nice thought. To do the sanctifying work on the cross. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Um, um, the, the result of the cross, Hebrews uh, chapter 13, brings us out even more that we have been set apart, sanctified. Um, eternally, that's the thought. Set apart in, in, in order... Uh, as a result of the blood of Christ being shed on the cross and, and the work that he has done for his people. But I don't think that's the full force of what's being said here. That might be included. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart to my new role, to my new work. What is this new work, his new role? Well, he is the advocate. He is the high priest. He is the intercessor for his people. And so now the Lord Jesus is in God's presence. You want to look at verses such as Hebrews 2.17, uh, 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2, uh, Hebrews 6, verse 19 and 20, uh, Hebrews 13, verse 12 to 14. All these kind of verses that really bring home to us the, not only the sanctifying work of the cross, but the sanctifying work of the Lord Jesus when he is now preserving his people as they journey home. Perhaps it's pictured in chapter 13. Some people feel that the, sh the feet washing of the Lord is actually a picture of his present work, which is an interesting thought. I sanctify myself. He is interceding on our behalf. Uh, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. And so the reason why the word of God has its effect in our lives... Imagine chapter uh, 13 and, and the Lord taking the basin and taking the water from the basin and washing the disciples' feet. And we think of what that means. And of course, it has practical significance of how we deal with one another. But just now, just think of the picture. The Lord applies the word to his people and we are sanctified by the truth, particularly the apostles, but by extension, us. Now, we have looked at the son praying for his and the Father's glory, the Son interceding for the apostles. Finally, the Son intercedes for all future believers. Verse 20 to 26. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their words. So that's us. We have listened to the New Testament, the truth of the word of God, and that is us. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. 
So this is uh, a greater scope that we have now. This is every believer in, in this present age, those who respond to Christ. Verse 21 to 23. Verse 21 to 23, there's this idea of unity with a message for the world. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they all may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you give me, I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. That the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So the unity, is this a trans, a, an outward unity? Well clearly if it's an outward unity there has been no evidence of it. Some feel that um, it was only seen in Acts 2 and, and then it was immediately broken thereafter, you know, by any schism that comes in. Uh, I don't think it's a superficial thing, this. I don't think it's even a denominational thing. In fact, of course, the denominational things are the denial of the truth that's Im implied here. But I will say this, that there are deeper things that unify us as God's people, I'm talking about true believers in the Lord Jesus, those who truly know Christ, than what separate us from each other. So you speak to a true believer in the Lord Jesus, they share Christ with you. They are indwelt by the Spirit of God as you are. By one Spirit have, they, have we all been baptized into one body. And the unity of the body of Christ is, I think, what's in view here. God is going to bring together people from all different arts and parts, backgrounds. This is John 10, of course. Um, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I'm going to bring that there might be one flock and one shepherd. And, and that idea of, of, of the Lord having being central and the magnetic uh, attraction for every single true believer in the Lord Jesus. Now, there are believers from different walks of life. There are believers from different ecclesiastical backgrounds, different skin colours. There are believers with every single conceivable external difference, but they have one uniting factor, and they would all point to Christ as the only answer for the human problem. They would all point to the Lord Jesus as the answer to man's need. And as such... This is something that draws every believer. It's a, something we share with believers, whether they belong to um, the type of local church that we deem appropriate or not. It's something that is true of genuine believers. And, and so that's what I think the Lord is saying here. He said, and, and the purpose for that is that they all might be one in us, that the world might believe that you sent me. In other words, as as... God's people, as, as if the world looks upon true genuine Christians and sees the love that's between them, sees the unity that they have, see what they share in Christ, see that they have the Spirit of God together, they might be, they might acknowledge that the Father must have sent the Son after all. There's something unusual, unnatural about this whole thing, um, supernatural we might say, about this whole thing. Verse 24. Not only do we have unity, we have glory, verse 24. His desire for his own. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am, 
that they may behold my glory. So this is after their work that they're going out to do. And this is those who have believed. You remember that the, the, the apostles have been given a work earlier on in the chapter. He has sent them forth as apostles. And then, of course, there are those who believe through his word. So the, the, these are the, the, the spoils of the work that Christ has done through his apostles, as it were. But now he's saying, let's come to the end. I desire that those whom you have given me be with me where I am. That's all believers. All believers from this time period, this age of grace. I desire that those whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Now what is the glory that you have given me? I think that perhaps is a distinct glory from what we have at the start of the passage. Glorifying that thou me with or alongside thyself with the glory which I had alongside thee before the world was. I suppose there's a sense in which the Father has given the Son his glory. Um, back again, I suppose you could say, from the glorifying expression of, of, of the earlier verses. But I'm not sure. I think this is the, the, his glory in, in exalted manhood. He, he takes to himself that glory that is his own. Um, and, and we see him, the, the, the risen Lord Jesus, and, and we see that glory in the face of a man. A true man who was here, who lived for God, who loved uh, the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. The one who was the son of the father. And we see divine glory in true humanity. The word became flesh. And now he says, I want those people who have accepted me as the divine son, as the one who truly was sent, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. For you love me before the foundation of the world. And the son speaks as the son. He says, before this world was ever created, you love me. And the son was eternally the son. The father was eternally the father. And there was this reciprocated love. Finally, and I have declared to them your name. Um, sorry, I missed a line there. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. So this is the reason why the world are not in, the, in this enjoyment. That this enjoyment is restricted to those who have entered into it. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name. What a... A revelation we've been brought into. And he says, I will declare it through the work of the Spirit within them. He will continue to declare right to the end of the age. He will declare the Father's name. That the love which you have loved me may be in them. And by extension, we have through his Spirit, Christ indwelling. His people, I in them. Now I realise that was a lot to cover. Um, it's a long podcast. It always is, isn't it, with me? But anyway, um, a lesson on divine fellowship. Isn't it wonderful that we've been brought into this one, this unbelievable fellowship, this closeness of fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we're united in Him and in His Father, and we are not only in Him and in His Father, but he can be manifested practically 
in us as we come to the end of the passage. So as we've looked at this uh, study, uh, as we've looked through this upper room discourse, I hope that you will be blessed in your own um, meditations on this passage. Um, there are questions also in the handout. The handout is available if you don't have the handout. Um, just drop me an email and andwilliamson01 at yahoo.co.uk and you can receive these, these handouts for your own use, even if you want to use them uh, for yourself or in a small group setting. Thank you and I trust that will be a blessing to you.